Well, if you have a Bible, then we'll go to Mark 15, moving on to the second to the last chapter tonight. Mark 15. And we'll read the first 20 verses there. Begin in verse 1, and it says, And straightway in the morning the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council and bound Jesus and carried him away and delivered him to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answering said unto him, You said it. And the chief priest accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. And Pilate asked him again, saying, Answerest thou nothing? Behold, how many things they witness against thee. But Jesus yet answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Now at that feast he released unto them one prisoner, whomsoever they desired. And there was one named Barabbas, which lay bound with them, that had made insurrection with him, who had committed murder in the insurrection. And a multitude crying aloud began to desire him to do as he had ever done unto them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Will ye that I release unto you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priest had delivered him for envy. But the chief priest moved the people that he should rather release Barabbas unto them. And Pilate answered and said again unto them, What will ye then that I should do unto him whom you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. Then Pilate said unto them, Why? What evil has he done? And they cried out the more exceedingly, Crucify him. And so Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole band. And they clothed him with purple and plaited a crown of thorns and put it about his head and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they smote him on the head with a reed and did spit upon him and bowing their knees worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him." You know, it's interesting, just a little side note here, it just kind of reminded myself of something as I was reading this. You know, they, it goes into a lot of detail of the mocking, the spitting, and all the other cruelty, but when it talks about the crucifixion, it doesn't get into any detail at all. It'll just say they crucified him. They don't get into all the, this is what happens when you're crucified. It's interesting, isn't it? Make a big deal about all the mockery and the cruel things that they did to the Lord. But I want to start off by just asking a question. Have you ever felt like, you know, your life has just come under heavy bombardment. Everything's relatively peaceful. Everything seems to be going along good. And suddenly it just seems like there's one bomb falling on you after another with the name trial written on the side. And it's like you don't really have a lot of recovery time. It's like, well, this one hit me and bam, the next one's coming at me. You know, you watch these documentaries in World War Two. You'd see the English people, the people in London or whatever, they'd be eating family dinner, enjoying each other's company, and then all of a sudden, out of the blue, you know, the sirens sound, and here come the Germans with their bombs. They're going to start bombing the buildings and the houses, and everybody's got to run, drop what they're doing, drop your fork, drop whatever you're doing. You don't have time to clean up anything, and you're headed straight to that bomb shelter. But a lot of times, these people will come out, and they just find everything they had is in rubble. It's just rubble. It's just in ruins utter destruction and suddenly just out of nowhere they go from eating dinner to where their life is turned upside down and they're looking at this thinking now what am I going to do with all of this all this rubble how am I going to make sense out of this sometimes I think life can be like that can it we can all relate to Job Job basically had that happen to him I mean overnight his life went from the richest man in the world had health everything's going good to where 
It's like his whole world's turned upside down. Thankfully, though, we don't have to experience it to the extent Job did. But the point is, Jesus is no stranger to this kind of a trial. What I'm trying to get at is, in relating to what we're talking about, you think about it, there has been a lot that's happened in 12 hours of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's just had the Last Supper with his disciples, and it's kind of like what I was saying. You're sitting there eating with your friends. Everything's fine. He institutes the communion service, and when it's all over with, they sing a hymn, and they're singing a praise to God walking down into Gethsemane. And everything seems pretty good, probably to the disciples and even to the Lord at that point. But he gets to Gethsemane, and what does it say happens to him? His spirit is troubled, agitated. He becomes very distressed, and the trouble begins. And he goes in the garden, and he prays like no man has ever prayed before. In agony, it says. It talks about in Luke that he has great drops of blood falling down. I mean, his world's coming in on him. And then all of a sudden... He's done with that, and here's Judas and company, and he's got to deal with the betrayal, and he's arrested just like a common criminal would be arrested and stuck in a squad car and driven away. (laughs) That's what's happening to him. Then all of a sudden, he's taken from that during the night. He's rushed into two trials. One we talked about the last time was just a kangaroo court, and they had the verdict before they heard any of the evidence before the Sanhedrin. And then he's taken straight from there, we'll see tonight, right to Pilate, straight before Pilate, who represents the entire Roman Empire. Pilate declares him more than once, I find no fault. You're innocent, but yet I'm going to crucify you. I mean, there's absolutely no justice. You know, they talk about where's the beef. Read all this and you say, where's the justice? I mean, it's like nowhere to be found. By 9 o'clock in the morning, you think about this, he's having dinner the night before. By 9 o'clock in the morning, he's crucified. By noon, total darkness has covered the land. By 3 in the afternoon, he's dead. That's all happened. From 9 at night on Thursday until 9 in the morning on Friday, he's having dinner with his friends, with the disciples. It goes from that until nine in 12 hours, he is suffering the worst torment that a devil or a man could devise to put a human being through. And that's how quick things change for him. We're kind of losing that. Well, let me ask you, the Lord going through all of that, and I mean, that was all pretty intense. Everything, it was intense that happened from the betrayal to Gethsemane, all of it. It's like I was saying at the beginning, sometimes it seems like our life is that way. At times, doesn't it? And so to say that he can't help us and relate to us based on that, I mean, I think he can. And that's why we can go to him and know he will give us the grace to help us in time of need, won't he? I mean, that's what Hebrews 4 tells us. That's one of my favorite verses, Hebrews 4, 16. A faithful and merciful high priest because he's been through all of that and worse He suffered everything that we'll ever go through. Any temptation that you'll ever go through, no matter how bad it is, he went through it to the nth degree. We'll never have to go through it to the nth degree. He never sinned. He experienced everything as bad as it could be. We've kind of broken down the last day, the last week, into bite-sized pieces. It's kind of hard to get a feel, this is why I'm going through this, for how rapidly these events are happening how rapidly they're unfolding. Even this court case and the way this is all going with the Jewish leaders and we'll see with Pilate, this is not a typical day in Jewish or Roman justice. I mean, actually, by Jewish law, if you condemn somebody to death, you could not put them to death that same day. 
you had to wait at least one day. And there would be mourning for him. I mean, there is like no mourning for Jesus whatsoever, at least not from these religious leaders. It seems these, these religious leaders, they're violating all the laws. They're carefully manipulating every detail that's happening here. It seems that way, doesn't it? But we're told in Acts 2 that Jesus, and I know I've said this before, but I'll say it one more time. Jesus was delivered to Pilate. He was delivered to Pilate not by the plan of these devious religious vultures. I mean, that's just the image I have of them. But it says of Jesus this, that this man, Jesus, was delivered over by God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge. So what that tells us is everything we're reading here, as bad and as cruel as it is, God's invisible hand is controlling every single thing that's happening. Every insult, every punch to the face, every person that spits in his face, that all had been determined before the world ever began. Every single instance of what happened. God was in control of Jesus's literal trial. And so we can take comfort from that because he's in control of our trials. He is. And so we have to do what our Lord did. And that was what we talked about in Peter, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. And that's easier to preach for for all of us than it is to do, isn't it? To just say, I'm going to commit everything into the Lord's hands. But that's what faith is. And that's what he calls us to do, to commit our lives, our families, our jobs, our future, our health to commit it all into the hands of him who judges righteously. Isn't that what it says? I mean, we have that in 1 Peter 5. He goes on to say, you know, cast all your care upon him, all your worries, all your cares, because he cares for you. And that's the way God is. The question that I want to look at tonight is the question that is faced by three, I would say three of the main characters. It's not all the characters I would say the crowd could be characterized as one of the characters. But the question that is asked is, what will you do with the king? What will you do with the king? That's the title of the message tonight. And that question is faced by Pilate, Barabbas, and the Roman soldiers, and by implication, us. So we'll look first at Pilate. When you look at verse 1 in chapter 15, We see that it's telling us there that as soon, immediately in the morning, straightway, immediately in the morning, the chief priests, elders, and scribes, they pronounce the death sentence on Jesus. They officially pronounce it then. They bind him, and it says they lead him away to Pilate. And they do it early in the morning. You know why that is? Because that's when he would hear cases. Because after a certain point, the rest of the day is spent in leisure. He's not going to hear a case in the afternoon after lunch. You're too late. So they get him there first thing in the morning. A little background. He lived in Caesarea, which is on the coast, and it was a metropolitan town compared to Jerusalem. But he would come to Jerusalem when they had these festivals because he had to make sure, have his presence there to make sure the peace was kept because they would tend to have these uprisings. He was the fifth governor of Judea, and he held office for 11 years from A.D. 26 to A.D. 37. He was the longest governor of Rome to ever hold that office, but that's not necessarily a compliment. 
because all of the uprisings, all the rebellion, all the, the way the Jewish people were, all their insurrections, it wasn't a, a job that you would want to hold. If you want to put it this way, on the rung of positions you could have with the government of Rome, it was on the bottom to be the governor of Judea. The fact that he was there that long was more a sign of failure than success because he had done several things to provoke the Jews and get them to cause uprisings there. Like one thing he did is he took the Roman legions, brought them into Jerusalem and into the temple. They had these big banners that had these images of Caesar on there. Well, the Jews are like, that just totally offended them. They're like, you know, we have a law against images. So here's what they did. They, a big, huge crowd of them, marched 70 miles from Jerusalem clear to his house in Caesarea and had a sit-in. They sat down and they said, we're not moving out of here until you get those banners out of Jerusalem. Sat there for five days. And finally, Pilate's like, tells his soldiers, he goes, you tell those people, I put up with this long enough, either they're going to be dispersed or you use your swords and take care of them. And they came down there with their swords drawn and there's a historian, Philo, and he writes this. Those soldiers came down there, and those Jews, it said they just put their necks like this. It says they bare their throats, welcoming death rather than transgression of the law. They're like, go ahead. You can start with me. And he backed off. He backed off, and he took the banners out of Jerusalem. So that's one time that it was bloodless, the confrontation, but he was not always that nice. There was another time he raided the temple treasury, took the money out of that, built a 23-mile aqueduct into Jerusalem to bring water into Jerusalem, and they protested that one too. The crowds gathered in protest, and Pilate sent his men out, and they slaughtered a bunch of them over that one. So it wasn't always bloodless, and he wasn't always that nice about things. In fact, he was rather brutal a lot of times when it came to justice. Well, what that does is that helps us understand how Pilate, when this trial with Jesus comes up, he's trying to deal with these crowds because the emperor was not happy with the way he'd been handling things. He was always in hot water. In fact, he eventually lost his job over it. His job is to, to keep from having these uprisings, to keep the people settled down and not to be shedding blood over provoking them, unnecessarily provoking them. That's what's happening. They bring Jesus here and they're trying to get the crowd stirred up. He wants to avoid that if it's at all possible. But there is no love loss between the Jews and Pilate. They don't like him and he doesn't really care for them. If you would, turn over to John's Gospel in chapter 18 because it gives a little more detail about what happens here with Pilate and Jesus, especially at the beginning. If you look in John 18, beginning in verse 28, it says... And then they led Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment, and it was early. And they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. And Pilate then went out unto them and said, What accusation bring you against this man? And they answered and said unto him, Well, if he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up to you. And then said Pilate unto them, Well, take ye him and judge him according to your law. And the Jews therefore said unto him, It's not lawful for us to put any man to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spake, signifying what death he should die. And then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this of thyself, or did others tell it of me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priest have delivered thee unto me. And he asked him, he says, 
well, what have you done? Isn't it interesting at the beginning of that, it says they came early, but they would not enter into the judgment hall. Why? They're worried because of the law. They're worried about defiling themselves by entering into a Gentile court. Yet, this is kind of the hypocrisy of the whole thing. They're worried about that little detail, but they violated the heart of the whole law by judging an innocent man, pronouncing a death sentence on an innocent man, and doing that through false witnesses. They're violating the law and the spirit of the law in every single way, but they're just so worried about this little minutia, and that's just kind of the way they are. And that's the way dead religion can be a lot of times. It's going to worry about the minutia, but like Jesus says, faith, love, and mercy is lacking a lot of times when it's that way. But Pilate asked them, what I want to look at here over in John is two important questions. And the first one's there in verse 29. He says, what accusation bring ye against this man? They're just trying to get Pilate to do their bidding, quote-unquote, just because. Look what they say there in verse 30. They say, well, if he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up to thee. Could you imagine a prosecutor in, in an American court system? A prosecutor brings a defendant in, and the judge asks him, well, what are the charges against this man? And the prosecutor's saying, well, do you think I'd bring him here before you? If he wasn't guilty of something heinous, do that to Judge Judy and see what happens. You know, a prosecutor really doesn't have a case. He doesn't have any charges to bring. I don't think that'd work. That's what they're doing in verse 30. And Pilate, he is a shrewd politician, and he doesn't want any part of this, and he's not going to be manipulated that easy. So he tells him, he says, well, you take him then, verse 31. You take him, judge him according to your law. But the Jews therefore said unto him, it's not lawful for us to put any man to death. So he kind of called their hand. So at this point, apparently, they must have told him what the charges were that they had come up with. So you've got to kind of read all the different gospel accounts to piece this all together. If you get a harmony of the gospels, which I would suggest it's a good thing to get, it'll give you all of that in four columns, what's going on simultaneously in all four of the gospels. And you can put it together a little easier. But in Luke's account, he tells us what the charges were that they brought against the Lord. Luke's the only one that says what they were. And this is what they were. In Luke's account, it says, Well, we found this fellow perverting the nation, forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ a king. And so they named three things that they bring charges against the Lord. And the first two are just blatant lies. They say he's perverting the nation. Well, I mean, what does that mean? How was he doing that? And forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, well, he's the very one that said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And has Peter, hey, get the tax. We'll pay our taxes. That's what we're supposed to do. I mean, those were just blatant lies. But the last one saying that he himself is Christ the king, when he hears that, when Pilate hears that, that catches his attention. Because a threat against Rome in any province, in anywhere that Rome ruled, that someone is going to try to rise up and be a king, that has got to be something serious, and he's got to look into it. But he goes into the judgment hall where Jesus is to find out what's going on, and that's what we have here in verse 33. So then Pilate entered into the judgment hall and called Jesus and said unto him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, You say this of yourself, or did others tell you of me? And he said, Am I a Jew? I don't know anything about all this. He says, thine own nation and the chief priest had delivered you unto me. What does he say to him there? He says, what have you done? That is the second important question. 
because the rulers of Israel, they could not really bring any evil charges against Jesus about anything he had done because he hadn't done a single evil thing, had he? There was nothing there, nothing to accuse him of. And Pilate is a practical man. He doesn't care about words. He wants to know, what have you done? What have you done that's caused this, that they want your death? That question, what have you done? I like what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, well, you know, Jesus could have said to Pilate, what have I done? Well, I've healed the sick. I've raised the dead. I've made tormented people filled with demons in their right mind. I've fed the hungry. I've taught gracious words of truth. That's what I've done. And he could have gone on and on, couldn't he? And I think if he would have answered Pilate that way, I think Pilate would have let him go. I really do. Instead, how did he answer him? He said, look, if you're worried that I'm here and I'm planning to overthrow the government or overthrow Caesar, have an uprising against the emperor, you don't have to worry about that. Look what he says in verse 36. He tells him, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. He says, but now is my kingdom not from thence. And Pilate goes on and asks him, he says, so what are you telling me? You got a kingdom? Are you a king then? And Jesus doesn't deny it by what he says. In essence, he says, you say rightly that I am a king. He, that's what he's telling him. He said, well, let me tell you what my purpose, my mission, my reason that I'm here. And what does he tell him? I'm here to bear witness to the truth. Here to bear witness to the truth. But Pilate is a lot like the generation that we're living in today. And he raises the question, what is truth? Because we live in a generation and it's coming from the universities right on down to where everybody says truth is relative. We can't really know what truth is. What you think is truth is truth for you. And you try to witness to some people. I've tried to talk to some younger people and that's the answer I'll get. They'll be like, well, if this is working for you, this Christianity you're talking about, it's great. But it ain't working for me. I've got my truth over here so that they don't get offended. But it's just like whatever truth is for you, that's your truth. That filters into the church to where the church, you know, they had a movement that went on a few years back. It was called the Emerging Church. And there's a downplay then as a result of that on doctrine and theology. Fellowship becomes everything. But if you look at Acts 2.42, we talked about this at one time. There was four pillars that the church has to stand on, and the first pillar that's given is the apostles' doctrine. That has got to always be first. And then fellowship comes as a result of that, not the other way around. Fellowship's important. You know, the Old Testament, if you think about it, it is filled with contests between whom? True and false prophets. But we have that a lot of times. And when the true prophets are stoned, they're silenced, they're jailed, they're driven away, and the false prophets gain the upper hand, which happened in Israel many times, then what are they left with? What is any nation, any generation left with when that happens? It's what it says in Isaiah. Truth, then, is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. Yea, truth fails, and he that departs from evil makes himself a prey. Isn't that what it says in Timothy? That there's going to come a time when they will despise those that are good. Haters of God. 
loving themselves more than God. That's what we're heading into. But it says, he that departs from evil makes himself a prey, and the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no judgment. That's what's going on here with Jesus. What is truth? For Pilate, truth is relative. He has no basis for truth. He's the epitome of the world. Like I said, he's a shrewd, worldly, wise man. He is able to see, don't we know this? He can see right through the hypocrisy of these religious leaders. Worldly people, I meet them in prison. They can look right through you in a lot of times. They can see whether you're for real or not. They can tell you that much. They might not want truth, but they can tell whether you're a hypocrite. They'll they sniff that out. Because it says in Mark 15.10, here's Pilate. He says he knew that the chief priest had delivered him for envy. He could see right through the charges, the way they're accusing him, the way they're dealing with him, and the way Jesus is acting. He also knows something else, doesn't he? He also knows that not only is Jesus innocent, but he knows that there is something different about him than any man he's ever met. I think Pilate is shrewd enough he could see that too. So look what it says here. Look down beginning in verse 38 of chapter 18 in John. It says, Pilate said unto him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews and said unto them, look, I've questioned him. I find no fault in him at all. But you have a custom that I should release unto you one at the Passover. Will you therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? Then cried they all again, saying, Well, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. And then Pilate, moving into verse 19, Then Pilate therefore took Jesus, scourged him. Just another little aside here. So the other gospel accounts are only going to give you one scourging. There was three different types of scourgings they would do. This is probably the first one, and he got a second one. The first one, this one, would have been a lighter scourging. It would have been a whipping, but he's just basically trying to chastise or punish him in a way to where it might satisfy their bloodlust, okay? Because the scourging he gets the second time is not nearly as nice as this one. Because the second one is where they use those pieces of leather and they put metal and bone and it literally rips flesh. It will show your bones in your back and expose your organs. And, you know, you've probably heard this before, but a lot of people wouldn't even survive that. And the reason they do the third one, which they did do to our Lord, is so they can hasten the death of these people on the cross. I mean, not much mercy there, but it, it'd keep them from hanging on that cross as long. That was free. So we're moving on here. Scourged him, verse 2, and it says, The soldiers platted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe, and said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they smote him with their hands. And Pilate therefore went again and said unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. And then came Jesus forth, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said unto them, Behold, the man. And when the chief priests therefore and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. You do it. And the Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die. Now listen to what they say, because he's made himself the Son of God. And look at verse 8. When Pilate heard that saying, what does it say? He was the more afraid and went into the judgment hall and said unto Jesus, Where are you from? And it says, But Jesus gave him no answer. 
Verse 10, then Pilate said unto him, don't you speak unto me? Don't you know I have power to crucify you and have power to release you? And Jesus said, you couldn't have any power at all against me except it were given thee from above. Therefore, he that delivered me unto you has the greater sin. And from henceforth, Pilate sought to release him. Wanted to get rid of Jesus. He says he was the more afraid. They're saying this man is the son of God and he's thinking to himself, who is this guy? I know there's something different. They're saying, the Son of God, what have I gotten myself into? Now listen, Pilate's the governor. I mean, he's the supreme power in this area at this time, right? He's representing all of Rome. But I'll tell you what's happening here. It's not Jesus on trial at this point. He's on trial. Pilate's on trial. But he's shrewd. Like I said, if there was a fault to find in our Lord, he would have found it. But he repeatedly says, I find no fault in him at all. And he desperately wants to release Jesus. And here's why he's becoming more afraid. Because back in Matthew's account, he's got something his wife told him ringing in his ears. When he's saying, hey, you need to make a choice, people. Make a choice between Barabbas and Jesus. And he sits down while they're making that choice. And while he's sitting down there, his wife, it says, has a message delivered unto him. Have nothing to do with that just man. For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. She's telling him, have nothing to do with that just man. And listen, when your wife gives you a message like that, you listen, don't you? You better listen, fellas. <laughs> I mean, that's what happened. Time to listen up. He's a man. He's faced with a situation here he doesn't know what to do with. And I'd say rather he's faced with a man that he doesn't know what to do with. Seven times. And you look in the verses we read from 1828 to 1913, he goes into the judgment hall, comes back out to talk to the Jews, goes back in again to ask Jesus some more questions, comes back out. He goes back and forth like that seven times in and out. He's distraught. He's upset. He's agitated. He's afraid. He is, knows he is over his head. And I'll tell you another thing that I think is happening here. He's on trial. His conscience is bothering him. He knows this man's innocent. He knows there's something about him. He's here and he's the son of God. He knows there ought to be more he's looking into with all of this. He's torn. He wants to just be neutral with all of this, but he can't be. He even washes his hands, doesn't he? And that's a Jewish thing. That wasn't a Roman thing, but he knew enough of their customs. I'm washing my hands of all this. But you know what he couldn't wash? Couldn't wash his conscience. Couldn't wash his conscience. He's got to make a choice. Just like all of us do here. What will you do with this king? What are you going to do with the king? He can't get away from it. You know, the religious leaders and Pilate, they both are confronted this night with that question. And you know how they answer that? You know how that question gets answered with both of them? How do they always tell you if you want to find out where the root of the problem is with these things that come up in the world, in political system and other ways? Follow the money. And that's all you have to do. Follow the money with his thinking. Because Jesus says this, Matthew 6, Lay up not for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust does corrupt and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust does corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. 
And he goes on to say, no man can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And that's really what he's up against right there, isn't he? That's what he's up against. And we've got the same choice facing us today that Pilate faced. What am I going to do with the king? That's what we have to ask ourselves, all of us in here. And the statement that the Jews used on Pilate that finally forced him to make a decision is in 1912. Look what it says. And from thenceforth, it says, Pilate sought to release him. Now look what it goes on to say. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whosoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. That no friend of Caesar statement, not a friend of Caesar, they're not telling him, well, that means you're not serving him well. You're not a friend of Caesar. You're not being a good governor. That is not what that is. That is a position, an official title you could have. And when you were given the title, quote unquote, friend of Caesar, then it gave you special privileges and status in the Roman Empire. And that's how he got his position. Somebody that was a quote-unquote friend of Caesar is the one that got Pilate appointed. When Pilate hears that, that, hey, you're going to lose your title or never get it, friend of Caesar, oh, that's where the rubber met the road for him. He's thinking, man, you know, this position here, governor, you know, it might not be much, but it is what I have, and if I keep doing all right, it's going to lead on to something else. But if I lose this, it's all over because he did lose it just several years after our Lord's death, and he never heard from again. Reliable sources. There are sources that say he met a bad death, but don't know that for sure. We're back to Pilate. What is truth? He asked Jesus that. What is truth? And he's saying, look, truth for me, here's Pilate. It's this present world and all that it promises, he says, because I can touch and feel this present world. All this Stuff you're talking about, my kingdom, is this from some other world? I don't know anything about that. That's goofy talk is probably what he's thinking. What's the choice? What's the choice that Pilate had? He can have friendship with Emperor Tiberius, who was the Caesar at the time, who represents the world, or he can have friendship with King Jesus. The one he's seeing right here, the innocent son of God, who embodied truth. And so what was his decision? We're still in John 19. Look what it says. Verses 15 and 16. And it says, And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said unto them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. And here's what Pilate's answer was. He can wash his hands all he wants to, but it says in verse 16, Then delivered he Jesus unto them to what? To be crucified. That's Pilate's decision there. He could have let him off. And they took Jesus and led him away. And you think about it, how many people down through the centuries have been confronted with making a decision? Is it going to be the friendship of King Jesus or the friendship of Caesar's? And they've made the wrong decision. You know, Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 4, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. That's what's going on here with Pilate. James 4, now he's writing this to the church. Probably get to it eventually. James 4.4, 4. James says, You adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship 
of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And that's something we all need to think about, isn't it? It really is. But as Paul writes, but beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. And I trust that we here are like Abraham. When he heard the voice of God calling him out of the wilderness, it says in Hebrews 11 that he obeyed and he went out not knowing whither he went. We don't know, do we? Pilate wanted to know what he could see, what was in front of him, what was certain, his ambition, his promotion, everything he knew. Truth for him was what he could see. But Abraham, he couldn't see where he was going. He just had to obey the voice of the Lord. And that's where we're at. We don't know where our journey is going to take us. And we probably ought to be thankful for that at this point. We just got to trust though. we're on a journey that's going to end in glory. But we have to just like Abraham, what did he do? He had to cleave to the Lord and determine I'm going to obey the Lord wherever that takes me. Wherever that takes me, cleave to the Lord and trust the Lord. And then we're talking about he chose to be a friend of Caesar. But Abraham, it says this of him and it can be said of us. It says the scripture was fulfilled, which said, Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness. This is also in James. And he was called the friend of God, not the friend of Caesar. So we can be the friend of God. Hopefully we are. Hopefully that's who we're walking with. Walking by faith and holiness makes us the friend of God. We know without saying it doesn't mean he's our buddy. But he's looking for friends like that. He is. If you go back to Mark... 15. And the second person that Jesus has to do with is Barabbas, I want to look at here. And look at what it says in verses 6 to 7. It says, Now at that feast he released unto them one prisoner, whomsoever they desired. And there was one named Barabbas, which lay bound with them that had made insurrection with him, who had committed murder in the resurrection. So you get this picture. In the morning, here's Jesus being brought before Pilate, and there lay Barabbas. And how does it say he lay? It tells us right there in verse 7, it says he lay bound, didn't it? And he's bound how? He's bound with chains. Dreading the thought of what was coming, I'm sure. He'd seen other people crucified and he knew that what was coming his way was going to be a literal hell on earth. That's what crucifixion was. Nothing to look forward to that morning except the torture of the cross and judgment. What he didn't know, though, is that somebody else was being bound in his place that morning. Look back at verse 1. Look what it says in verse 1, chapter 15. And straightway in the morning the chief priest held a consultation with the elder scribes and the whole council. And they did what? It says they bound Jesus. So there's Jesus. Barabbas doesn't know anything about this. But here he is. Now whether they bound his hands in front of him or behind him, I don't know how they would have done that. But they bound him. And many commentators say that it's likely they put a rope around his neck and just led him that way. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But either way, it says they led him down the streets, humiliating him. He still has been beaten. He's been clubbed in the face with fists. He's got spit on his face. I'm sure they didn't wipe that off. But what's he doing here being bound and led? He's fulfilling scripture. Isaiah 53, 7 says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet it says he opened not his mouth. He is brought or led 
as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus is led bound, isn't he? So that we can experience release from our bonds. From our bonds. And that's why we quote it. I won't quote the whole thing. But Luke 4, Jesus says, God has anointed me to do what? To preach deliverance to the captives. We sang it in a song tonight. In the same song, right in the same area I happened to notice, they talked about friendship and also talked about being loose from the chains. And that's what we're talking about right here with Barabbas. Jesus was bound so that there could be an Acts 16 experience at midnight. We know about that. Paul and Silas bound. It says they prayed and sang praises unto God. And the prisoners heard them. They're listening. What are they singing? They're singing psalms, aren't they? That's what they would have been singing. And it says, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bands were loosed. That's what we have in Acts 16. What a sight. But that's what the gospel is, isn't it? He was bound so that we could be unbound, that we could be free. That's what it is. If you would turn over to Psalm 107. Psalm 107. And we read the first 21 verses there, saying, God has come to release us from bondage. Psalm 107, verse 1, O give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed, bought back from the hand of the enemy, and gathered them out of the lands from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. They wandered in the wilderness in a solitary way, and they found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. And then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them out of their distress." and led them forth by their right way that they might go to a city of habitation. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men. For He satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. Look what it says here, verse 10. Such as sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, being bound in affliction and iron, because they rebelled against the words of God and condemned the counsel of the Most High. Therefore, he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down, and there was none to help. Now, this is because of their own fault. <laughs> but he brought them down, really, in his grace and mercy, because verse 13 says, And they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. You in distress tonight? There it is. And he brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and did what? Break their bands in sunder. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he has broken the gates of brass and cut the bars of iron in sunder. Fools, because of their transgression and because of their iniquities, are afflicted. Their soul abhors all manner of meat. They draw near unto the gates of death. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and He saves them out of their distresses. Oh, He sent His word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men. I could have stopped at verse 16, but I wanted to talk about healing. Or just read that verse anyway, so praise God. That's our God, amen? amen? I mean, oh, that men would praise the Lord for His goodness. You're in any kind of bondage, 
any oppression, any distress. He says, you call upon me and I will deliver you in the day of trouble. Isn't that what God says? And he will. I mean, he will. I was telling a brother today, no matter if it's a Job's trial or it's a chastisement because of your sin, either way, the answer is what? It is to seek the Lord, isn't it? No matter what your problem is, that's what Job had to just stick with it. And it says the end of Job. Look at the end of Job. He didn't give up. He didn't quit, did he? He counted on God's faithfulness. And you go through, and maybe when I get back from vacation, I got a message out of First Chronicles where they sought the Lord and got things right, and God always came. And the message from the prophet was, if you seek the Lord, you'll be found of him. And he'll bless you. He'll be with you. But he says, if you forsake him, what does he say? God will do what? So the key is what? Always to seek the Lord, isn't it? You're in change, you're in bondage in any way. Seek God, He'll deliver you. He will. He's faithful to do that. And the last thing we want to look at, if you go back to Mark 15, is the Roman soldiers. The last ones here that make a decision on what to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. Look in verse 16. And it says, The soldiers led Him away into the hall. They called Praetorium. And they called together the whole band, clothed him with purple, plaited a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews, and smote him on the head with a reed, spit on him, bowing their knees, worshipped him. And when they had mocked him and took off the purple from him and put his own clothes on him, it says they led him out to crucify him. There are always going to be those in the crowd that are going to mock the Lord and his messengers. That's just the way it is. You know, when Paul preached, in Acts 17, on Mars Hill, at the end, when he was done, it says, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, it says, some mocked. And others said, we'll hear thee again of that matter. But then, praise God, there were still some that believed. And that's the way it's going to be. But you're going to get a reaction. The Lord's going to get a reaction, just like he does here. It says, they gathered the whole battalion of these soldiers together. I mean, there's a crowd around him mistreating the Lord. Even though they're doing that, says the whole band was called together, there had to be at least one of those men that are involved in this or at least watching it that God is starting to deal with his heart and bringing conviction to him. And you know why? Because I think this man is saying, wait a minute, we've dealt with these guys before. We've dealt with these Jews that are renegades, that are insurrectionists, that are troublemakers. And they kick and bite and spit at us right back at us. But there's something about this guy. He doesn't have that hate in his eye like we've seen with these other. No, when I look at his eyes, I'm seeing pity there. That's what I imagine was going on. And I think God was starting to deal with his hard heart. And who would that have been? On the cross, when Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost, and the veil of the temple was rent in two from top to bottom, when the centurion which stood over against him, saw that he cried out and gave up the ghost. He said, truly this man was the Son of God. I believe the other account says this was a righteous man. He came to that conviction. I think God opened his eyes, didn't he? And had mercy on him. Even those that mock. You may have relatives that mock. Children that mock. That doesn't mean it's all over, does it? Nobody's heart is that hard, is it? They may mock and they may ridicule and they may say, you know, you're a religious fanatic, but God can open that centurion's heart in the position he was in. He can open your relative's heart, your son or daughter's heart, a friend's heart, a co-worker's heart. The question is, isn't the question going to be, 
What will we do with the king? What will you do with the king as he's presented in the scriptures? Because Pilate and his religious leaders said, we will not have this man reign over us. And a lot of people have said that in and out of power. Or are we going to be like Barabbas? Because you know what Barabbas means? Bar means son. Abba. Abbas, son of the father. And that's what he became that day. And that's the gospel, isn't it? He's bound and he's unbound because Jesus was bound. Isn't that the gospel? Jesus is delivered in his place and he is set free. I guarantee you that man got saved if anybody did. But that's a picture of the gospel. That's what happened. Jesus is bound and led and crucified in our place. That's what happened for Barabbas. And that's what he's done for us. Amen? That's what he's done. And when we see that, when we're that way, we can sing to the king. Praise my soul, the king of heaven. To thy throne my tribute bring. Ransom, healed, restored, forgiven. Evermore his praises sing. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise the everlasting king. And hopefully that's what everyone here will do with the king. Amen. Embrace him in that way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again, Lord, for what the Lord Jesus was willing to suffer on our behalf. All the ridicule, the mockery, the spitting, the being hit on the head, everything, Father, just for our sake that he was willing to do that, that he was willing to be bound so that we could be free. And we're just so thankful for that, Father. And calls that to be a reality in our souls and something that causes joy in our hearts and that we never forget that Lord and we keep that the main thing and that all the glory goes to the Lord Jesus Christ for what he's done for us and for who he is. Amen. And we thank you for the words you've given us tonight, your word of truth and your scripture. And we do that in Jesus name. Amen.